Hello and welcome to this sermon podcast. My name is Esther and I'm so glad to be here with you right now. This past week, my parents moved out of their home of 37 years, my childhood home in Virginia. And even though we had already visited in the past and said our goodbyes to the house, it still felt strange to see it internally disassembled, perhaps because we saw it all from afar through the photos and updates that my parents sent. It's a strange feeling knowing that somewhere out there, the place you thought of as home growing up will never be there to go back to in the same way. Today, we're going to talk about people who also lost their home from afar, only in a much worse situation. And we're going to ask, what does it mean to find God's life when you're uprooted, when you're displaced and depleted? In this sermon series, we've been looking at how God brings life by tracing the theme of water in the Bible, because in the Bible, water was often symbolic for life. And today, we're literally going to follow the path of some water. And I'm really excited because we get to do it with someone who doesn't get much airtime, Ezekiel. As we'll see, Ezekiel is asked to do three things as he follows this water, three things that help him understand that water of life. He's asked to notice, to enter, and to believe. Notice, enter, and believe. We're going to look at those three things with him. But first, some background. The book of Ezekiel happens during what is probably the lowest moment in the story of God's people in the Old Testament, the exile. The Israelites have arrived in the promised land, but over time turned their backs on God, and eventually their idolatry and sin are so bad that God allows the Babylonians to conquer them. The Babylonians attack Jerusalem in three waves, each time bringing back some of the Israelites to live in exile in Babylon. During the first wave, they bring back Daniel and his friends, whom you might have heard of. During the second wave, they bring back a young priest named Ezekiel. At that time, the city of Jerusalem is still standing. It's not until the third wave of attacks over a decade later that Jerusalem gets destroyed and the majority of the Israelites are brought into exile. Four years into his exile, Ezekiel starts getting visions from God and becomes a prophet, not unlike Daniel. But you could say Ezekiel gets the shorter end of the stick. Instead of getting to look handsome and become the royal favorite like Daniel, Ezekiel has to literally act out God's messages of judgment, doing things like lying bound on his side for 390 days straight, eating cakes baked on human excrement, shaving a fraction of his beard off, and becoming mute. All that has given him the reputation of being one of the weirder prophets of the Old Testament. Seven years into his prophetic career, and 33 chapters into this book, Ezekiel and his fellow exiles get the report that the Babylonians have attacked Jerusalem for the third and final time, this time destroying the city. The temple within it has been burned to the ground. This was the temple that King Solomon built, the place of God's presence that had given shape to their worship for 500 years. This was Ezekiel's home where he had worked and lived. Their sense of home would never be the same again. Commentator Daniel Block writes this, Exile is not simply being homeless. It is knowing that you do have a home, but that your home has been taken over by enemies. 
Exile is not being without roots. It is having deep roots, which have now been plucked up. And there you are, with roots dangling, longing to be restored to native and nurturing soil. Exile is knowing precisely where you belong, but knowing that you can't go back, not yet. We may not be in political exile, but maybe we know something of that feeling, of how it feels to long for a home or a sense of belonging, of how it feels to wrestle with something about yourself or your identity. Maybe in the wake of COVID, you feel displaced or uprooted. Maybe you're aware of living in a culture where the majority do not follow God. Maybe it's as simple as feeling lonely or down, emptied out or hopeless. These were the people that Ezekiel was speaking to. When we're in those places, what does it mean to have God's life? How do we find it? Well, God sends Ezekiel a guide to show him how. In chapter 40, he receives a vision of a man who comes to him and says, Set your heart upon all that I shall show you. And then, in this vision, the man brings him to a temple, the very place he and his people had just lost. And Ezekiel gets the guided grand tour, measuring tape and all for the next seven chapters. The temple in this vision turns out to be similar in many ways to Solomon's temple, but not exactly the same. In fact, Ezekiel sees something in this visionary temple that has never been seen before in any other temple. You might be guessing what that is, but let's read about it. We're going to drop in right at the end of Ezekiel's tour in chapter 47, verse 1. Chapter 47, starting in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Ezekiel sees water. That word behold literally means, look, check it out. It reflects excitement and wonder. Here's where we have to remember the significance of water at that time. Jerusalem was the only great city of the ancient world that wasn't located on a river. And in that dry climate, a dependable water supply was essential for life. Water represented growth, vitality, refreshment, hope, security. In fact, blessing, life, and water are almost interchangeable ideas in the Old Testament. And this is water where there shouldn't be any water. You only get water in that part of the world if you dig for it or travel to find it. This water comes without having to do any of that. It is a gift, an act of grace. And Ezekiel is very clear. It comes straight from the threshold of the temple, which is the entire central platform where the sanctuary of God's presence was located. The water is not coming from a government building or the marketplace or athletic arena or a private home. It comes from one place, the presence of God. And other than entrances, the one temple structure mentioned in relation to this water is the altar, the place where sacrifices were made for sin. Right here from the start, we see that life from God is an act of grace that comes from His presence through a sacrifice for sin. But here's the thing. There's barely any water coming out. The word issuing here literally means oozing, drop by drop. 
I don't know about you, but if I was God trying to make a metaphorical point, I would have put like a waterfall here, maybe even some fountains and lights like Bellagio level, something impressive that could be seen and heard from far away. But no, all we have are drops oozing on the ground. These drops are no less a miraculous act of grace, but they come quietly, not so much announced as noticed. That's the first thing Ezekiel is asked to do here, to notice, behold, look, look, or you might miss it. You know, when I feel displaced or depleted, usually my first response is to get out of it by doing more or getting more. And actually, more than anyone, Ezekiel had shown he was willing to do anything. He ate cake baked on poop. Given that, it's interesting that here at the start, all Ezekiel is being asked to do is to notice, to see the wonder of God's grace, even in difficult places. Do you notice the ordinary graces in your day? Maybe it's a moment when you were able to resist temptation. Maybe it's a sign of life, like a child running down the hall or a plant sprouting a leaf. Maybe it's a quiet act of service someone does for you. Maybe it's a word of correction that's brought to your attention. Maybe it's strength to do some repetitive, unseen task. Maybe it's a moment of rest you're able to have. When we notice, we're not just acknowledging that nice things happen. We're seeing those things as intentional gifts that flow from God and that therefore show us something about His own character and nature. As we notice, we ask, what do these things show me about God? How do these things give me a greater consciousness of God's presence and work in even the smallest ways in my life? And as we notice, we do so with wonder. Behold, wonder is what happens when something doesn't travel along the lines of our own expectations or capabilities. Wonder is the ability to stop what we are doing and to take in something that is beyond ourselves. The first thing Ezekiel does is notice the small graces that come from God's presence. Let's read on. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist-deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? At this point in the tour, Ezekiel's guide leads him outside of the temple as they follow the water. The water flows east, going around the south side of the altar, then around the south side of the eastern gate of the inner courtyard, then exiting the temple around the south side of the eastern gate of the outer courtyard. The reason Ezekiel can't follow the water out through that outermost gate is because it was closed. Four chapters ago, the glory of God came into the temple through that gate, after which it was shut. So Ezekiel has to exit through the north gate and walk back around to the east side from the outside. His whole detour is an implicit reminder of the route God himself traveled through the temple. The stream is virtually retracing that path, flowing along the presence of God. As long as the water is inside the temple, it remains but a trickle. Once it leaves the temple, it begins to grow. 
And that's how life in God's kingdom works, isn't it? The life we have isn't meant to be kept to ourselves. It must go out into the world. And as it does, it grows. It's like the mustard seed that becomes a tree with spreading branches in Mark chapter 4, or like the rock that becomes a great mountain in Daniel chapter 2. It begins with something ordinary, but grows to change the topography of the entire landscape. That's what happens here. 1,000 cubits is just over a third of a mile. The water deepens from stream to unfordable river in just over a mile. And Ezekiel is led straight into it. The second thing he is asked to do on his journey is to enter the water. And my question is, why? Surely one can tell the water is deepening by looking at it. Why couldn't he just do that? I'm quite familiar with the feeling of watching water without going into it because all our kids swim, which means I spend a lot of time next to a pool. There's a lot you can learn about swimming by watching things like technique and stroke count and all the rest. And for a while, I thought I was pretty on top of things. Then one day I read something our daughter, who was 11 at the time, wrote about swimming. It went like this. When you swim, you see the bottom far below you and it feels like flying. And I realized, I know nothing about swimming. As long as I'm on dry land, I'll never know. It's like the difference between reading a Wikipedia plot summary of a movie and actually watching the movie. Those Wikipedia summaries can be amazingly detailed and yet somehow miss the whole feel of the movie, right? It gives us the illusion of knowledge without any real knowledge. Ezekiel can only have real knowledge of the water by getting into it. And for the first time in his tour, he uses units of measurement that aren't universal, but personal. He doesn't say the water went from one to three cubits deep. He says the water went from my ankles to my knees. He has knowledge of that water as it relates to himself. We can fall into the habit of experiencing spiritual life secondhand from the spiritual lives of others. We can read about it or listen to it more than we enter into it ourselves. What would it look like for you to experience more of God for yourself? What would it mean for you to ask for a deeper experience of the Holy Spirit, for you to go deeper into His Word or deeper into community? What would it mean for you to have a deeper consciousness of God's mission for you in your home or workplace? And notice here how this experience of entering works. Ezekiel doesn't just jump into the deep end. His experience of the water had to happen step by step. He emphasizes that by how he records it. It would have been much more efficient for him to say, I was led into water that went from ankle deep to over my head in the course of 4,000 cubits. (laughs) That would have saved a lot of scroll space. Paper was probably expensive back then. But look at the repetition here. He led me through the water and this happened. He led me through the water and this happened. There's a poem by Denise Levertoff in which she describes the way a dog sniffs the ground as it moves along. The poem ends like this. Nevertheless, he keeps moving, changing, pace and approach, but not direction, every step and arrival. The way you walk through ankle-deep water is different from the way you move through water when it goes up to your waist. And that's quite different from the way you move through water when you can't touch the bottom. The pace and approach are different, but not 
the direction. Ezekiel records it all, every step and arrival. I don't know about you, but when I enter something, I prefer to jump in the deep end to reach a resolution or realize an outcome. But very often in the spiritual life, we have only enough illumination to see one step ahead. God's invitation to us is not necessarily to enter into a quick resolution, but to enter more deeply into whatever He has to show us at this particular step. Because the things of most value in the spiritual life, the experience of grace, the felt reality of truth, transformation of character, those things happen most in the unresolved spaces of our lives, in the struggle, in the waiting, in the mess, in the figuring it out. Once we see this, we can begin to walk as Elijah did through the water. And we can give others the freedom to do that too, to grow in their own way, in their own time. Ezekiel notices the water and he enters it step by step. Let's finish our story now. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the river flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand by the sea. From Engedi to an Englaim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing." At this point, Ezekiel stops following the water. He climbs out on its banks and his guide tells him that the water continues east into the Arabah, which is part of the Jordan River Valley, then flows into the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea got its name for a reason. It lies 1,400 feet below sea level, making it Earth's lowest elevation on land. It measures 30 miles long and 9 miles wide. The Jordan flows into it. Nothing flows out of it. It's a dead end, literally, and it is also dead in the sense that almost nothing can live in it. The Dead Sea is ten times as salty as the ocean, conditions in which no animal or plant can survive. But in Ezekiel's vision, the river from the temple brings life where it did not exist before. Ezekiel and his listeners would have immediately thought of the creation account in Genesis, which the language here echoes with its swarms of living creatures and trees that are good for food. This passage also echoes an account Ezekiel could not have known about at that time, one from the other end of the Bible in Revelation 22, where we read about the eternal city, where the river of the water of life will flow from the throne of God and the Lamb with trees of life on either side. Ezekiel's vision evokes not only the original creation account, but the future recreation account, the eternal future that is the home our hearts long for. What is Ezekiel being asked to do here? 
He's being asked to believe, to believe in something he can't see from where he stands on the banks, to believe in God's promises even at the lowest moment of his people's lives. Because where we find our hope and security at those moments is what shows us what we truly believe. In real life, the temple Ezekiel sees never gets built. The Israelites do eventually return to Jerusalem to rebuild a temple, but it was a small-scale version that made old men weep because it was such a far cry from what had existed before, and there's no report of God's glory entering it. The Jews continue under the power of the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. But then you turn the pages to the New Testament and read that Jesus was the glory of God come to temple among us. He went to the altar of the cross for our sins, where out of his pierced side water flowed. Three days later, he rose from the dead, life where there was no life, just like the remade Dead Sea. And because of that, if we believe in Jesus, we have the promise of an eternal city with a river of life one day. And we have the promise of a river even now. In John seven thirty eight, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When we believe in Jesus, our bodies become temples in which the Holy Spirit lives. And out of our hearts, out of all that we think and do and speak, can flow that very river of living water to nourish others and to change the world. The story we read today is a story about God, yes, but ultimately it's also a story about us It's a picture of what we ourselves can become to the world around us. As Ezekiel writes, everything will live where the river goes. May we experience God's life more fully and bring that life to the people and places around us as we notice, enter, and believe. Let's pray. God, what a glorious... What a gracious picture you gave your people during a time when they were feeling uprooted and confused. You, God, are our home. Your river gives us life. Help us to notice signs of your presence in even the most ordinary of ways. Give us the desire to enter more deeply into an experience of you in our lives and strengthen our faith, strengthen our belief in your promises and in your power. We ask for that power to flow out of us as we live for your kingdom now and your kingdom to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.